you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. Me Martinez. All across LA County, more school districts are welcoming back students in classrooms. And the big one, LAUSD, is gearing up their campuses to pull double duty, both for in-person learning and as vaccination sites. Plus, have Native American COVID deaths been undercounted in California? Find out why a community leader thinks racial misclassification is to blame. It's all ahead on Take Two. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. Me Martinez, thanks for joining us. Coming up, the saga around the Burbank bar called Tin Horn Flats. It's flouted regulations for years, especially so during the pandemic, and now the owner's son has been arrested. We'll fill you in on that story just ahead. But first, things are getting a whole lot less restrictive in Los Angeles County. We've moved into the orange tier today, which is a good thing, but a whole lot of caution is still advised. Here's L.A. County Health Director Barbara Ferrer earlier this afternoon. I want to again thank everyone for tremendous progress uh, that we've seen over the last two months. Uh, And uh, we're officially in the orange tier because of that progress, meaning that more businesses and activities are open. And this is great news. And we don't want to take a step backwards and live through any additional increases in cases. Businesses can't afford this, and our hospitals are just now getting some much-needed relief. Now, for more on this and to answer all of our coronavirus-related questions, we have Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Doctor, welcome back. Uh, I mentioned up uh, a bit up top, but can you elaborate, though, on what it means to be in the orange tier? What can we do now that we could not before? So movie theaters and restaurants were already open, but movie theaters, restaurants, churches, museums, they can go from 25% of capacity up to 50% capacity. Gyms can go from 10% to 25%. So it's a bit widening, bit loosening of the regulations. And for things like film and TV production, they can open with modifications. So expect to see more people in some of the places that uh, maybe you didn't see as many people before. Um, How much, though, Dr. is California, um, how much of California is moving into the orange tier and why is that significant? Yeah, well, the orange tier really opens things up. So in addition to um, Los Angeles, some of the Bay Area is um, in the orange tier and some of northeastern California is in the orange tier, as as well as a few other scattered counties. So counties are going in the right direction in California, and this helps us return to our normal way of life, at least a semblance of it. Yeah, whatever that's going to be in the future. Um, Okay, so this is all great. It's all well and good. Uh, The businesses are reopening more, but uh, I got to admit, it's still a little nerve-wracking. Here's uh, L.A. County Health Director Barbara Ferrer one more time. But our reality with more variants, increases in cases across the country and much of the world, and lots more intermingling here in L.A. County is such that we're going to need to continue following public health safety measures until more people are vaccinated if we want to hold on to our gains, particularly as we move into the orange tier with additional reopenings and increase capacity limits at various establishments. 
Doctor, what concerns do you have about this move of more counties to the orange tier? And what message do you want to relay to people as folks uh, start to dine out more, go to the theaters more? Well, it's it can be a real challenge. I have to tell you, you know, yesterday I went to a I went out to lunch. So I was sitting outdoors um, with some fully vaccinated adults, and then I went indoors to um, to order something, and I didn't put my mask on. Ooh. And I just, you know, I've been so used to wearing the mask all the time, and then I got used to wearing not wearing the mask in the restaurant, and so the wait staff reminded me, and I put it wow. on. I felt a bit ashamed of myself that I should know better. But, you know, it, it's hard when things change. It's hard to have any kind of consistency and to remember what the rules are. I think that's going to be a challenge for all of us going forward. Yeah, I got to admit, uh, a few days ago, I got out of my car and started to walk into a grocery store and I realized I didn't have a mask on. I ran back to the car mm-hmm. and felt like an idiot, an absolute idiot. But I mean, I don't know. Is that, I guess, I st- since I start to feel and see things start to open up, maybe I, my mind starts to slip a little bit on that. Yeah, absolutely. I did the same thing. I, I, I was in the office and I walked out of my office into the hallway without a mask on. And, I, you know, I felt I felt like I was naked or something. I mean, yeah. it was it's like such a weird feeling after all this time. I got to admit, doctor. So I I've long for I mean, for longest time, I've wanted to wear a mask in public. I always felt ashamed or embarrassed or self-conscious about it. But I got to admit, going forward, I think I'm going to do that for a, for a while. I don't know how long, but I think I'm going to do it for a while and not feel bad about it one bit. I mean, in the end, wearing a mask, you know, once this pandemic is over, still, does it help me with colds? Does it help me with generally with germs? Is that still a good thing? You know, we, we know it does. We know that other respiratory viral infections were at all-time lows during the pandemic because of the social distancing and mask wearing. We had a record low influenza season because of social distancing and mask wearing. At UC Davis Medical Center, we had zero positive influenza tests, no patients admitted for influenza this past winter respiratory viral season. It was incredible. And we're all familiar with Asian cultures that a lot of people normally wear masks during the winter respiratory viral season. So that might become a thing in the U.S. and in the West also. So there you go. L.A. County, this is a message for you, L.A. County. You're going to see A. Martinez masked up for who knows how long. It's just I I may just do it forever. So there you go. In case (laughs) anyone sees me now. Um, The the many variants of the virus uh, are typically are what's giving people pause right now when it comes to resuming our, our old lives the way they were. They're reports now, doctor, of a double mutant strain in the Bay Area. It sounds a little like a movie in a way, but what do we know about it? Yeah, so these variants are going to be occurring all the time. As the virus replicates, it's going to make mistakes, and you're going to get different variations of the genetic code. Some of these are going to be worthless variations, meaning that they they, they don't have any advantage and might be a disadvantage for viral replication, and they'll die out. But some of them, especially if the mutations take place in an area that encodes for critical parts of the spike protein that binds to our cellular receptors, if these mutations make it so that it binds more efficiently, then that's going to be a better virus from the Mm. viral standpoint. It's going to be more transmissible, maybe even cause more severe infection. So those are the the variants that we're really concerned about that we really look at. And this double variant does have two uh, mutations um, in that area of the spike protein that's very important. One of them is um, we've seen previously the L452R mutation that was detected in California previously. And then the other one is the E4 484Q mutation, and that one's dominant in Brazil. Um, And we know that that's of concern because the Brazilian variant um, appears to be somewhat resistant to vaccine-induced immunity. Is getting more and more people vaccinated in a a way shutting the door on these variants as they happen? I mean, if, if more and more people get vaccinated even faster, do these variants don't have any room to grow? That's absolutely true. So you don't get the variants without viral replication. So the more people that are vaccinated, the more immunity that we have throughout our communities, the less opportunity the virus will have to replicate, and then we'll have less variants developing. We're talking to Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Uh, last week, the state announced that uh, counties in the in the less restrictive tier 
can allow concerts and, and theater productions to resume, and that would include L.A. County. Uh, capacity, of course, reduced, but it was said that uh, more people could attend events like these if they showed proof of vaccine or recent test results. We've talked about, Doctor, uh, these so-called vaccine passports on the show before. Can you remind listeners, though, what exactly they are and why might some businesses consider mandating them? So the concept is that they'd be some sort of of like identity card, like a driver's license that hopefully would be difficult to um, to um, copy, um, and they would be maybe on your phone, and they would show that you're immune in some way to COVID nineteen. So either you've been vaccinated or you've had recent infection, so that you're not at risk for you're not at high risk for infection, and that if you had large gatherings, that of course would be a concern if you had many people people who are vulnerable, who are still susceptible to infection, this could potentially trigger a large-scale outbreak. So that's the concept of the vaccine passport. And I think where it's really been more well-developed has been in in several European countries that are working on this. Now, on the issue of reopening businesses, uh, sanitizing is a a big part of that effort. But today, the CDC revised guidance on COVID COVID hygiene, saying that, uh, quote, while it's still possible for people to be infected through contact with contaminated surfaces or objects, the risk is generally considered to be low. Uh, Doctor, I mean, I got to admit, I feel a lot better when I really scrub things down. But is that now a bit of a mental security blanket for me? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the we've known that the main source of viral transmission is via the respiratory route. So that's why masking and distancing really can have dramatic effects in controlling the pandemic. Theoretically, the virus does survive on surfaces, but we don't know at what concentration a surface may be potentially infectious. Just because we can detect the virus doesn't mean that it's infectious from touching that. And if you think of the whole, the whole chain of transmission, you'd have to touch a potentially infectious area of the surface. It'd have to have a high enough concentration to be infectious. Then when it's on your finger, then it'd have to survive long enough for then you to touch your eyes, nose, or mouth. Um, and, and then with a high enough concentration to, to inoculate you. And that's just, we just haven't seen that. We've seen no outbreaks that I'm aware of related to surface contamination. So it's great to have clean surfaces and it's great to wash your hands. I wouldn't describe encourage that. But the primary way to control this pandemic is via the respiratory route. So it sounds like for me, it'd be a lifestyle choice. I I choose to be, doctor, a masked up clean freak. Well, there's several advantages to um, washing hands and keeping services clean, including preventing norovirus outbreaks, for example. Nobody wants norovirus infection or or staph infections, for yeah. example. Yeah, I'll tell that uh, to people who say, why are you wearing a mask? Why are you such a clean freak? That's what I'll tell them. Um, now, there are still people who are reluctant to be vaccinated. What have you seen and heard as some of the reasons for this uh, still? You know, most of the people that I've found reluctant to be vaccinated um, aren't anti-vaccine. What they are is they're they're just concerned that this is new technology, that these vaccines are new, that they're just out there, and they're waiting for more experience. And now we do have a lot more experience. So as this experience gets reported, as more data trickles in, I'm hoping that people will be more comfortable. They 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 didn't want to be first in line for the vaccine. They wanted others to to get the vaccine. And now that others have gotten the vaccine and we found how safe and effective it is, I'm hoping that this will be very reassuring to to many people. Doctor, what's your pitch? Say someone's listening who's still resistant, hesitant, what would you say uh, for, for them to get vaccinated? We know these vaccines are safe. We know the most common side effects are the fever, the fatigue, the local side effects after immunization, especially after the second dose. And we know that these vaccines protect extraordinarily well. I mean, not only do they protect against um, disease, but they have a one, all the vaccines have basically 100% effectiveness preventing death and very high effectiveness preventing hospitalizations, the more severe forms of the disease. And they prevent transmission too. So it's not only beneficial to you, but it's beneficial to your loved ones. Now, all over California, kids are heading back to school for in-person instruction. We're going to be talking about that a little later in the show, uh, but most students are still unable to get to vaccinated. Doctor, what's the latest in the Pfizer vaccine for kids aged between 12 and 16? When might uh, we see approval for that? 
Yeah, so we heard the good news from Pfizer-BioNTech last week that a small study that they did looked very good in 12 to 15-year-olds. They had more than 2,000 adolescents in this age group who were studied, and there were no cases in the vaccine group, no cases of infection, 18 cases in the placebo group. So 100% infection, 100% protection. That's not to say that with larger uh, groups that we might not get some vaccine um, group breakthroughs, but the immune responses looked more robust compared to the comparator group, the 16 to 25-year-olds, and it was well-tolerated with similar adverse effects compared to the older age group. So it looked very promising, and they're going to submit to the FDA for emergency use authorization to extend the age limits um, that the vaccine can be administered. What about for younger kids uh, the one, under 12 years old? Any sense of how those trials are going? We already have studies in those six months to 11 years of age, um, and depending on how those results are, we hope to keep extending the age range that the vaccine may be administered. Because remember, the only way out of this pandemic is to get large-scale immunity throughout our communities. So if we have a significant portion of the population that's excluded from vaccination, such as children, then it's just going to take that much longer to get through this. I know 16 and up are currently eligible for the vaccination. What's your sense on how many teens are getting vaccinated right now? You know, what I've heard is that people who are eligible, they want to be vaccinated. And so with the with the opening up of the vaccine groups in California, I would expect continued um, increase uptake in this group. A lot of parents are much more comfortable um, sending their kids to school or in group activities such as youth sports when their children are vaccinated. For parents who are vaccinated but whose kids are not, what's your recommendation for a family as they consider maybe social gatherings, travel, or even eating out? Is it safe for a family in this situation to to go about their mostly pre-pandemic lives at this point? You know, that that just all depends on risk tolerance of the family. For families that the adults are vaccinated, that the kids are healthy without any predisposing conditions for severe disease, then I think it is okay to go and eat out under the current county and state guidelines. You know, those families who have kids who might have um, risk factors for more severe disease, such as obesity, asthma, underlying conditions like heart disease, uh, you know, they may, they may be more reluctant to um, have the kids potentially exposed to these activities. What would you say, doctor, is the greatest risk to younger students now when it comes to the pandemic? Is it the virus or is it remaining out of the classroom? Because, you know, we we keep hearing reports uh, that uh, kids have suffered academically by not going to school. Well, not only have kids suffered academically, but their mental health has definitely suffered. Also, we've seen a 25 to 30 percent increase in emergency room visits for mental health issues during this pandemic, depending on the age of the child. And we've seen increased risk of emergency room visits for suicide attempts also. So we think it's critical for children to go back to school. We think it's very important. We think schools should be the first to reopen and, and the, last, um, the, last, uh, the last thing to close. That's Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Doctor, as always, thank you very much. Great. Thank you. All across L.A. County, more and more school districts are welcoming back students in classrooms. And the big one, LAUSD, is gearing up by their campuses to pull double duty, both for in-person learning and as vaccination sites. Find out all about it when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. 
Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. whistle along with that one back now with more take two on 89.3 kpcc and kpcc.org ami martinez across la county more public schools are inviting students back to classrooms and this week districts from duarte to whittier to san dimas will resume some in-person teaching the biggest reopening in our area though begins next week that's when los angeles unified reopens its first batch of elementary campuses kpcc's kyle stokes takes a behind the scenes look at the preparations You might think you're ready to set foot on a COVID-era campus for the mask mandate, for the social distancing signs, the hand sanitizer stations. Turns out that's just the beginning. I want to manage expectations a minute. (laughs) Principal Andrea Kittleson is about to give a tour of Walgrove Elementary in Venice, and she leads with a warning. The classrooms, especially for preschoolers and kindergartners, look really Spartan. It's going to be hard for TK and K to come back to like an empty room. To see what she means, our tour group gets our temperatures checked at the entrance. Welcome. We use an app to attest that we don't have COVID-19 symptoms. I got my fancy daily pass. And then we walk down a breezeway into a classroom with sky blue walls. So this is a TKK room. Kittleson points out a short table of masks, water, towels in the front of the room. In the back, a whirring vent constantly circulates the air. There are six white desks, six feet apart, and not much else. We had to take out the rug and the chairs and the books, and we had to take out the little kitchen. Also removed counting collections, books, blocks, all possible transmission vectors. This teacher will get up to 15 hours to spruce up this room before students get back, maybe make it feel a little less sterile. But Kittleson says it won't quite feel like it did pre-pandemic. It smacks of potential, but it also smacks of heartbreak. Many school districts are undertaking some of the same preparations, and already at least two dozen in L.A. County have resumed at least some in-person instruction. But the scale of L.A. Unified's reopening effort has district employees working literally around the clock. We're far from a school now at LAUSD's warehouse in Pico Rivera, a huge building that could comfortably fit six football fields inside. To keep campuses clean this spring, the district plans to spend an extra $120 million, including on protective gear, and a lot of that flows through here. Every day, workers like Danny Vasquez buzz around this warehouse on riding lifts, loading everything from bottled water to cleaning solution onto trucks that roll out at 3 or 4 in the morning. As campus reopening looms, Vasquez is bracing himself. It's going to get extremely busy. All these schools have to be sanitized or we're not going to open. And back at Walgrove Elementary, the staff are getting ready, too. We've scrubbed every inch of the campus to the best degree we can. They've set up quarantine areas. They've caution taped the playground. Principal Kittleson even gave up her office to a staff member who needs to play it safe. She admits planning for anything and everything is stressful. You're just doing a lot of hurry up, start over, hurry up, start over, hurry up, start over. And, but, but I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm For all these preparations, LAUSD expects most parents to keep their kids home this month. Many parents are waiting until fall when more people are vaccinated. In the areas where COVID hit hardest, like Southgate or East L.A., early numbers suggest only a quarter of students may return. Even in well-off Venice, the data suggest parents are torn. Shaka Foreman sent all three of his kids to kindergarten at Walgrove in the same bright blue room we're touring. And now, with the furniture rearranged and homey touches removed, he barely recognizes the space. This was a rich, vibrant room full of life, color, and activity. Um, if I had a four-year-old, I'd, they would not be coming to school like this. Uh, if I had the option, 
uh, they would not be doing that. I know many families don't have the option and I'm sure that the teacher in this room is gonna do an incredible job with the constraints that they're under. Foreman says many parents like him do not want to send the message to LAUSD that they're scared to go back. But Foreman's also worried about sending his kids back for in-person instruction, only to find so many restrictions that they might as well have stayed online. Covering Education, I'm Kyle Stokes. And we have Kyle now with us to talk more about L.A. Unified's plans. Kyle, you talked about the experience there at the end for kids who are going back to school. We've heard from listeners who are fairly upset about what's being offered in terms of in-person instruction across all grades, but mostly in middle and high schools, which is still basically uh, Zoom school, but on campus. What's your sense, Kyle, about how many families are not going back because of this reason? Well, I think there are a lot of cross-pressuring factors here. I mean, you've got LAUSD serves a largely low-income population. So I think the the, uh, the fact that COVID hit a lot of LAUSD's neighborhoods harder than many other school districts uh, in the state of California um, has to be factored in. There's a lot of fear about the virus and concerns about what would happen if the virus were to outbreak at a school. Um, and, and that just comes from, you know, having been hit particularly hard. Um, but I think that if you, to go back to your point, A, I made reference briefly in the story to the data, but even in a neighborhood like Venice, if, um, and these are a, a slightly outdated data, but the most recent data that I've seen broken down by geography, even in a place like Venice, where, you know, it's a high income neighborhood, you know, relatively well off, um, even if you, if you assume that the responses that they had as of the most recent data that we have, only about a third of the parents, maybe about two in five, are going to be going back or sending their kids mm. back to, to campuses, which I think indicates to you that it's something more than just fear of, of the virus itself. There is some, some concern, maybe the restrictions are too much on campus to make this worth it, especially in middle and high schools, which the story didn't really talk about, but yeah. uh, where you reference A, um, there's concern about what the, the plan is for what secondary looks like. Now, kids who are going back will still have to show negative COVID tests. Uh, remind us uh, when that needs to happen and how often. Right. So every student will be tested once they return to campus every week. And the district, after they return, will bring the tests to the campuses so that it'll be pretty easy for students to get their tests. Um, but bef the, the key thing is that before students return in the week before, they're going to have to go out and get a, a recent COVID test to sort of set a baseline. And that's going to have to happen as early as this week if your student in LAUSD is in one of the early opening schools. So after this after schools reopen, it'll the testing will come to you. But before, uh, you're going to need to get in the week before a baseline test for your kid. Also on the safety issue, LAUSD announced today that uh, it'll expand the number of campuses that will double as vaccination sites. Uh, Kyle, what's the plan? When is it this happening, and where? Well, we don't know exactly when it's going to start happening, uh, but we know where it's going to start happening. There's a list of 25 different uh, COVID-19 vaccination centers that LAUSD is now going to uh, set up on its campuses with the help of some community partners, and the community partners vary by site. And we only have a few of their names because, uh, you know, that's all that we have in the, the release that came out today. Um, but essentially, this is a huge scaling up of LAUSD's uh, vaccination center effort. Previously, they'd only announced two campuses would be uh, plant would be hosting vaccination sites. Those would be Lincoln High School in Lincoln Heights and then Washington Prep, which is kind of in the West Athens, kind of right by the 105-110 interchange. Uh, those two are opening up uh, tomorrow. Later this week, one will open up in Huntington Park, and then that'll be followed by uh, another 22 sites that'll open mostly in Central East and South LA. Um, and uh, again, operated by a number of different community partners, and it'll offer vaccine shots to families with children in schools. So from two to over 20, why does uh, LAUSD feel the need to expand it now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it goes back to that concern I mentioned earlier, the primary concern among parents who chose not to send their kids back to campus, or at least have indicated so far in the district's reopening survey, is that they're worried about the virus. And these are also, th these sites are concentrated in areas where uh, we're talking about the least likelihood for, for parents to have access to uh, easy vaccines. Uh, Superintendent Butner, when he made this announcement this morning, referenced the many different factors we're used to hearing about, the lack of technology, 
uh, the lack of time or ability to navigate the vaccine lottery. And so these are this is an opportunity to bring the the vaccinations closest to the communities in theory uh, in LAUSD's among LAUSD's population that need it most. So Kyle, the campus reopening plan is it pretty much locked in until the end of the year? Is there any chance maybe things will change? Yeah. So, I, I mean, among the things that people are thinking about is like uh, the six foot rule. LAUSD locked in uh, its agreement with the teachers union before the CDC switched things over to say uh, that that it's OK for elementary schools to abide under certain conditions by the three foot distancing rule. Uh, but the district is going to stick with the six the six foot rule. It doesn't look like things are going to change much. A lot of this is baked into labor agreements. They've already negotiated with the teachers union, among other unions. Uh, so I don't think that we can expect any changes. The question now is, what is fall going to look like? That's a big fat question mark. It's like the six second rule, Kyle. If it drops on the floor, you can still eat it. If it didn't <laughs> my, stay there My for rule six on that is doubled, doubled? even in this time of, of virus. So KPCC's education reporter, Kyle Stokes. Kyle, thanks a lot. You're welcome. All right, it would be one thing if the only equity issue Native Americans have dealt with during the pandemic is high positivity rates. They're three times higher than whites, by the way. The thing is, Native leaders in California are concerned that COVID deaths may have been way undercounted. The reason... Well, they say it's a long history of racial misclassification. Find out what that is and why they think that when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. More Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm A. Martinez. American Indians and Alaska Natives have been among the hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic. Now, according to the CDC, Native Americans have been diagnosed with COVID-19 more than three times the rate of white Americans. And here in California, some Native American leaders fear the deaths related to the virus may be undercounted. For more on this, we're joined by Joseph Quintana with United American Indian Involvement, a human and health service provider for American Indians and Alaska Natives in Los Angeles County. Now, Joseph, the pandemic has disproportionately affected indigenous communities across the country and here in Southern California as well. How have high rates of the virus impacted Native Americans? The pandemic has tremendously impacted our community in a number of different ways. American Indians are often the, an afterthought. And here in Los Angeles, which has one of the largest populations in the entire country for a county at 168,000, and if we include Long Beach and Orange County, those estimates grow to about 188,000. Prior to the pandemic, American Indians faced tremendous gaps of educational achievement. We have high rates of low income. We're in continuous cycles of poverty. And this all impacts our access to healthcare. And so everything you describe at a national level, as far as those who are, have the ability to get tested or who have access early on to get vaccinated, our membership was oftentimes and have been left out. So we did see quite an increase in the amount of American Indians who had uh, contracted the virus, uh, especially early on. Many of our families are multi-generational. There's multi-families that are living into a home just because of the simple fact that we can't afford it. So if one person contracts the disease or they contract the virus and they bring that home, that puts everyone in that house at risk. 
And Joseph, the, so the pandemic, how has it perhaps exacerbated some of the issues that Native American communities faced prior, prior to COVID-19? Well, prior to the pandemic, even at a time of great development and job growth throughout L.A. County, American Indians still face 2% higher rates of unemployment than all other racial ethnic groups. So you imagine many of those people who I just mentioned have barriers to job and career advancement. Many of them are stuck in lower entry-level positions. Those are the first positions to go oftentimes. So our membership, even though LA County has one of the highest rates of unemployment in the state at about 15%, early estimates didn't even tell us where the American Indian community was is because we're lumped into this other position. And that other position lumps us in with our brothers and sisters of Asian American and Pacific Islander descent. But there's nothing wrong with that. But it also limits our access to data and being able to adjust our overall strategy to get those services out to our members. Yeah, and so this lack of access to data, does that have anything to do with being misclassified? Because I know there's concern from Native American leaders across the state that COVID-19 deaths may be undercounted in California, in part because of a history of racial misclassification. To ex- explain to us how Native Americans have been historically misclassified. Data collection for us is almost like gold, and it's one of the hardest things to find and extract, in particular, working alongside local government and state government along the federal government lines as well. Prior to this uh, pandemic started, we were in the midst of a major housing crisis, and we were having issues as far as being able to track and identify where the American Indian population was. Across the LA County, there is no identified neighborhood on where American Indians reside. We're being misclassified not only because of the color of our skin or by our surnames, but we're also, we're left voiceless because oftentimes we don't want to share with other people that we're American Indian. Our fear and hesitance to share that, especially with government officials, continues to be an obstacle, of course. And so if if all of this you know, is happening and, and misclassification, lack of data is happening, it, it just feeds into a long history of, of Native Americans not having really accurate or correct data about, about themselves. Yes, you're exactly right. It becomes another form of erasure. And that's something that we're trying to change. Of course, uh, we can wait for the government system to write themselves. But we also have to, as an American Indian agency, try to be as proactive as possible and go in and advocate in those offices to say, I know your data is telling you this, but this is what our data on the ground is telling us because we have a built connection to our communities and our membership. And oftentimes, you know, we are hearing from our local leaders. We uh, didn't even consider the American Indian population to start, but they're making those changes in their era. Of course, we're a year into the COVID-19 crisis. And it's, it's a little disheartening to think that American Indians who are the first uh, people of this continent are the last people at the seat of the table. Wow. Didn't even consider Native Americans at the start. Um, we're talking to Joseph Quintana, Development Director at the United American Indian Involvement. Uh, now to the vaccine. Uh, how has access been for indigenous communities in Southern California? Now, access has actually been a, a strong point for us. Early on at the start of January, once vaccines started to come available, particularly with our relationship with the federal government, we received a couple hundred doses, which was very small. But they very quickly realized that we're able to get them out and into the arms of the American Indian community. And soon that hundred amount of vaccines doubled in size, has tripled in size. And we're happy to note that we've received 1,400 doses of the Moderna vaccine. About 900 of those vaccines have gone out into the public sector. Majority of our current staffing, which are people who are healthcare workers, about 80% to 90% of our staff members have all been vaccinated because we want to lead by example. A majority of our staff members are American Indian. They're hired from the community. Oftentimes, this is their first job. So how best could we help tell the story of the effectiveness of the vaccine if we're not actually being able to take the vaccine ourselves? That doesn't mean that that doesn't come with its own concerns. There are a lot of traditional beliefs that still take place, and a lot of that has backlash against westernized medicine. But the one benefit of our organization is that we have a medical staff, including medical doctors, nurse practitioners, who are American Indian themselves. They can help best educate our community, both understanding westernized medicine and how it also relates to traditional forms of healing as well. Joseph, has there been any help from local, state, or federal officials when it comes to vaccine education in case uh, you know there's, there's that hesitancy happening? There has been. We've worked closely with LA County's Department of Public Health on an education system, going out and actually reaching 
our members in their homes. We're also working with state government, state officials as well. Um, we're working with council member Gil Sedil's uh, local area office in order to identify members who can also go and receive vaccinations in his district. You mentioned the numbers of uh, Native American people here in the L.A. area. And I, and I don't know if necessarily a lot of people realize uh, how big those numbers are here in, in Los Angeles. Um, what else can be done to, to make sure that Native American communities here in L.A. and across the state are receiving what they need and are also being properly counted and represented? There's a great amount of cultural awareness and cultural competency that goes into all of this. And I think uh, when people generalize the term Native American or American Indian, uh, they don't actually understand that there's over 574 federally recognized tribes across the United States. This doesn't include many other tribes who are seeking recognition now. But just in L.A. County alone, we provide services for members from over 200 different tribes. So that's different languages, perspectives, cultures. Uh, and so how do we unify all these different groups in, in order to better assist them? And our membership can go anywhere throughout L.A. County, and they'll receive tremendous services. But the reason why they continue to walk through our halls is because they know that they're going to identify with the person who sits directly across from them, that they're going to receive the best specialized care that they can. And I would only recommend this, is being able to reach out and identify those memberships, and especially those community-based organizations like ours, who have the legitimacy, who can work with a specialized group and a unique population like the American Indian community. One more thing, Joseph, just wondering, everything we've talked about and everything you've mentioned is what has happened with the pandemic and how the United States has handled it, specifically with Native Americans. Is it just another punch to the gut when it comes to you know this community's history in this country and also this feeling of like, you're just last at the table, last at the table for everything? We're at a tremendous time, a real opportunity, a precipice as far as real change. We're looking at racial injustice. We're talking about inequalities and, and working towards equity and access. But we can't do that until everybody has access to opportunity. Now we're looking at having access to vaccines, but also everyone has access to the recovery efforts as well. And that includes the American Indian population, both uh, now and in the future. I think we're at a time politically where we now see the first American Indian sitting in a cabinet position as the U.S. Secretary of the Interior. Deb Holland, Deb Holland, yeah. Deb Holland, who's from Laguna Pueblo, who we have a built relationship with. And so we have to uh, uh, make sure that if we're talking about L.A. County and Southern California as being equitable, then also having access to public office for the American Indian community, that we can work on policy advancement and changes and access to health care and access to jobs and job security as we go forward. That's Joseph Quintana, Development Director at the United American Indian Involvement. Joseph, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, there's a bar and grill right around the corner from my house in Burbank called Tin Horn Flats. It has been... Well, it has had quite a saga in the last year, even going back beyond that, but it has become a bit of a symbol of flouting regulations, coronavirus regulations, especially during this pandemic. And now the owner's son has been arrested. We'll tell you all about the story when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Democracy needs to be heard. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition. Trustworthy, independent news is getting harder to find, but it's out there, and it matters for democracy. A healthy local news ecosystem leads to a stronger community. You can feel the difference, and you get strong journalism from LAist. So donate today at laist.com slash give. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and most places where you get your podcasts. I'm Martinez. 
A bar and restaurant in Burbank has made a big stir by defying the authorities during the pandemic. From the L.A. County Health Department to the Burbank City Council to court orders and police warnings, the owners of Tinhorn Flat Saloons say they are having none of it. The business insists nothing will keep it closed, and it's become something of a rallying cry against lockdown mandates. Elena Shatkin is food editor for our website, LAS.com, and she joins us now for the latest saga of Tin Horn Flats. Elena, welcome back. Hi there. All right. Uh, the fight between the restaurant and the city of Burbank has been going on since the state uh, closed down dining again just before Thanksgiving last year, escalating most recently in the owner's son being arrested twice within a three-day span. Elena, can you take us through the timeline, starting with the L.A. County Public Health issuing citations up through the recent red tagging? Well, sure. Um, just so you know, on social media, uh, Tinhorn Flats owners have been posting a lot of anti-mask stuff throughout the pandemic. And then, like you said, it kind of kicked into high gear in the late fall when L.A. put a temporary ban on all restaurant dining, indoor and outdoor. This is when COVID cases were skyrocketing. So then through December and January and, you know, uh, part of February, Tinhorn Flats continued to serve patrons on site, which it was not supposed to do. Um, count, the County Department of Public Health cited Tinhorn Flat, I think, something like 36 times. Um, at one point, maybe uh, it was cited by, you know, multiple times. Yeah. So finally, in February... Uh, no, I'm sorry, in January, the Department of uh, Public Health revoked Tinhorn Flats' health permit. About a month later, at the end of February, the city of Burbank revoked its conditional use permit. And a week later, in early March, the city of Burbank filed a lawsuit against Tinhorn Flats for violating Burbank's municipal code and being a public nuisance. Since then, um, you know, officials have gone to court and the court has ruled that, yes, you can put a padlock on its doors and Officials did that. The owner's son, Lucas Lepegian, cut off the padlocks, reopened the restaurant. Most recently, this happened uh, at the end of last week. So last week, Burbank uh, red tagged yeah. the building, which basically means it's, you know, uh unsafe to inhabit. You know, if you were around uh, during the after the Northridge quake, you probably saw a lot of the buildings that were red tagged, right? So same idea. It's unsafe to inhabit. They put a padlock on the doors. Once again, Lucas Lepegian cut them off, you know, invited customers in, kept serving them. He was arrested and, you know, uh, released the same day. So that's where it stands now. Wow. And, and just, I mean, in case anyone hasn't seen it, I, I live right near it. I, I run past it in the mornings. They've had a sign that says peaceful protest site on their uh, restaurant right out there on Magnolia Boulevard for everyone to see uh, for a long time now. So that's the kind of vibe that the place has put out uh, in the last year or so. Uh, okay, so Tinhorn Flats is uh, represented by the high-profile criminal defense attorney Mark Garagos, who's uh, posted to social media that the arrests of Lucas Lepegian, both of them were illegal. What's the argument, Elena, behind that? So I'm not a lawyer, and I'm just saying this based on only on one true tweet from Mark Garagos, but his argument seems to be that because Lucas Lepegian doesn't own the bar, which as far as I know is true, it's his father who owns the bar, Burbank can't arrest Lucas for the bar's violation of the red tag order. Okay, because I know that he was at the bars, and I, there there was, I heard it myself, Elena, I heard audio of him confronting some Burbank official that has been since uh, taken down from their Facebook page. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on back and forth on this. Um, now, we should say we right. reached out to uh, Mark Garagos to invite Lucas Lepegian on the show. We have not heard back quite yet, but in his absence, uh, Elena, can you give us any insight into what the argument's been for defying the pandemic mandates? I mean, is this an argument of political belief? at its core or what what else could it be you know you'd have to ask lucas lepegian to know for sure but my sense from his social media posts is that it's a bit of both it's both economic and ideological obviously there's a severe economic pain of the pandemic that so many businesses have felt but also it seems to be ideological for them um you know you'll see them you know, posting things like this is a trigger post for all you socialists, communists and far left American dream haters that want to shut down, want to shut down. We will not comply. Things like that. So it seems like there's a real ideological underpinning to their resistance uh, to pandemic safety protocols also. 
And, and Tinhorn Flats has exceeded its fundraising goal for its illegal defense fund, raising more than uh, fifty thousand bucks. Uh, there have been a handful of supportive protests on site. What kind of support does the restaurant have, both locally and beyond? Well, as far as I can tell, it's a real mix. Now, some patrons and neighbors support the bar, and obviously because they're coming there to eat and drink and spend time there. Others are completely infuriated and do not support it at all. And then there are some nearby businesses that I know are really upset because their attitude is, hey, these pandemic safety protocols were instituted to protect all of us. We're like, you know, 99% of the businesses, we follow them. We felt the same economic pain. Why is this one business getting to not follow them? And that's kind of, you know, that sets up a climate of really unfair competition for the rest of us who did the right thing and who did follow these orders. You know, Elena, from an enforcement standpoint, why does it appear so difficult to shut down a business when it doesn't have a permit to legally operate anymore? That is an excellent question. So you have multiple agencies involved. You have the L.A. County Department of Health, which, um, you know, contrary to some belief, actually, for the most part, doesn't want to shut restaurants down. It, it doesn't relish closing businesses. And in a lot of cases, we'll give businesses, you know, ch- you know, write citations and give them chance after chance to fix whatever errors they see. Um, then you have ABC. That's Alcoholic Beverage Control. It's a state agency that's responsible for the production, distribution, and sale of all liquor in California. It oversees liquor licenses. Um, And the ABC tends to be much more of a hard case than the L.A. County Department of Health. You know, I've seen uh, venues and bars have their licenses temporarily suspended. I've seen them revoked. I've seen them shut down for violations that are far, far more minor than what we're seeing here with Tin Horn Flats. And when I reached out to ABC a couple weeks ago to ask about this, you know, I got, you know, a sort of form email back telling me that the issue is under investigation and it takes time, et cetera. But I too am quite honestly surprised that ABC, which is known for being real hard cases about, you know, uh, venues operating without a proper liquor license, yeah. which at this point Tin Horn Flats does not have, I'm surprised they haven't cracked down, honestly. It has been quite the foodie drama. That's LAS food editor Elena Shatkin. Elena, thanks a lot. And you can read all about this story on LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. All right, before we go today, we want to turn to the murder trial of Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis. While a jury is being asked to decide if the former police officer was at fault for the death of George Floyd, arguments from the prosecution and defense are being broadcast across the country, and it includes some very painful and potentially triggering content. So we're checking in with you, our listeners. If you're following the trial, tell us why you're doing it and how you're feeling. What kinds of conversations are you having with family and friends around the trial? And what significance will the jury's decision have on you? Call us and leave us a message on our voicemail, 626-583-5281. That's 626-583-5281. Tell us your name, where you're from, and how we reach you. And you can also share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Take Two. That number again, 626-583-5281. We really want to know what you're thinking about uh, the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis. As I mentioned, too, you can also find us on uh, Twitter, at Take2, at Take2. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. That's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take2 is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.